Well, it's nice to be with you again here at Veritas. I do bring you the greetings of your brothers and sisters in Midtown at Emmanuel Baptist Church. I know that Eric had announced today I was going to preach to you on the book of Revelation. That's because I'm preaching through the book of Revelation in our own church right now. But I actually thought I would preach something different to you this afternoon. Um, A few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, uh, I preached this sermon at IBC, coming off the back of uh, the Lord blessing us with a number of new members. And so I'd like you to turn and keep your Bibles open in Matthew 16 as we would open this portion of God's Word up. Let's pray together, and then we'll commence. Let's pray. Father, it's good for us to be gathered together as your people. It's good for us to have the opportunity to open up your Holy Word. And we would pray now that your Holy Spirit would come and attend the public proclamation of your Word, that you might instruct us regarding who you are, regarding your purposes on the earth through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would get all the glory. And we pray, Father, that our lives would be transformed and changed as we hear your word, believe your word, and shape our lives by your word. Come, blessed God, and meet with us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Listening to our news bulletins and watching our news programs, you would think that the most important issues in the world center upon things like the political situation in the Middle East, the political situation in Iran with all its nuclear aspirations, the state of the global economy. And even here in America, you would really think that the only thing that really matters is the presidential election that is coming up at the end of the year. Now, whilst these things are not unimportant, It is vital to remember that they are passing events, events that are actually not central to the purpose of God in the world. Contrary to what MSNBC might want to tell us, NBC might want to tell us, or even Fox News for that matter want to tell us, these things are not central to God's purpose. It's vital that we understand That God's purpose, the centrality of God's purpose, does not reside in the politics of the Middle East, the aspirations of Iran with nuclear weapons, nor the global economy, and dare I even say it, not even the American presidential election. God's central purpose in the world resides with his church. And that's what I want you to think about this afternoon as we gather together uh, to worship God and to meet together as his people. That spiritual entity, the church, that is described by the Apostle Paul as the pillar and the ground of the truth and the household of God is at the very heart of God's purpose in his universe. And I even note that you guys are having some baptismal classes this week and that you're hoping to have some baptism. So you evidently believe that the church is important and the church is a necessary thing. But perhaps you haven't thought about it quite as significantly as this, that the church is at the center of the purpose of God in the world today. And it's that issue that I want you to think about, with, uh, think about this afternoon as we turn here to Matthew 16 
verses 13 through 20. Because I believe that here in this particular passage, our Lord Jesus Christ's declaration that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, indicate to us that at the very heart of his mission, at the very heart of God's purpose in the world, is the church and the building up of the church. And if I might throw in a little bit from the book of Revelation, you'll get to this if you ever take your time to study it. We've passed it now and are moving on a little bit, but I've said it to my own congregation. When it comes to the final day and Jesus comes to judge the universe, the only thing that's going to be left in all of the universe is the church. Your marriages aren't even going to be left. Your families are not going to be the way they are today. Our nations are not going to be the way they are. But at the end of the age, when Jesus comes in his glory, the one thing that will be there, the one thing that will be glorious, the one thing that will still exist, will be his church. And if you want to check that out, read Revelation 19, you'll discover that is the case. Here in this passage, there are three propositions that I want to make with regards to the centrality of the church and the purpose of God. Because I want you to see from this passage and from other scriptures that the church is the result of the work of the triune God. The church exists as that which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have ordained from before the foundation of the world. That's why it was a delight to even hear that prayer that Josh read, or that we all read together, that was clearly Trinitarian. Did you notice that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are a Trinitarian institution, because we have been created by the triune God. And I want you to see that as we work our way through this passage and other texts. I want you to see, first of all, that the Father ordained the existence of the church even from before the world began. Now, you might say, well, where is that in the passage? Well, it's clearly implied in the passage from this perspective. Who is it that this passage is about? What is it that this passage is saying to us? Well, we see here clearly that this passage is primarily about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came from the Father. He came into the world on a mission from the Father. And here as he is gathering in his disciples, we see him engage with his disciples and ask the question, who do men say that I am? And Simon Peter, who was often the spokesman for the twelve, says to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice how Jesus answers him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because you have got a degree and you have worked out who I am. Because you've been to the top universities in the land and you've been really well educated and now you've been able to work it out. Or, uh, no, you were actually very well off and because of your status, you know, you get these privileges about identifying who important people are. No, none of that is the case. It's not even a case that he of his own free will actually recognized who Jesus was. Jesus says to him, You are blessed, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter came to know who Jesus was by the sovereign grace of God. 
The sovereign revelation of God it was that came and brought, took the scales away from Peter's eyes and caused them to see who the Lord Jesus Christ actually was. And therefore it throws the focus upon the Father. It is the Father in heaven who has revealed to Peter who the Son who is walking on the earth actually is. You see, the Son has come from heaven, the Son has come from the Father, and the Son has come to do his, his Father's will. And what is his Father's will? To build the church. So we can clearly see that the Father ordained the existence of the church from before the foundation of the world. That's why he sent his Son into the world, to establish the church. Now, it's important to stop for a minute and think about this, because in speaking of the church, we need to be very clear about what we do mean by this term and what we don't mean. I've never probably seen so much confusion in our day about what the church is and what the church isn't. You know, you do not have the right, and neither do I, to define what the church is. It's God who defines what the church is. It's Jesus who defines what the church is. You know, I meet people and they tell me, you know, well, this is the church. You know, I meet in Starbucks, have a coffee, and two or three of us there, that's the church. That's not the church. That's some people having Starbucks coffee talking about Jesus. Let's keep it straight. Let's keep it clear. You go to your Bible, you can work out from the Bible, what is the church? How do we define the church? Who has the right to define the church? We don't have the right to define the church any more than we have the right to define marriage. Because both of them originate with God. And God is the one who tells us how these things are to be defined. And so it's very important for us to understand this in a day of abject confusion amongst many professing Christians. They think they know what the church is and they they make it up to the point of utter confusion all over the place. And we need to understand then what we mean by the church, what we don't mean by the church. Now, of course, in one sermon, I can't possibly be exhaustive with you. But let me just say this. There are many eminent Christian writers who will refer to the church in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Now, you'll tend to find that they are usually Presbyterian writers who can, in some quarters, flatten the distinctions between the Old Covenant community and the New Covenant community. And we've got to be careful. Many of them are great men of God and they've written many good things, but in this realm, we've got to be careful. It is true that in the Hebrew, there are words in the Old Testament that speak of the the assembly of God, And then there are words in the Greek New Testament that speak of the assembly of God, and they're definitely connected. But we have to be careful. We need to think in biblical concepts, biblical terms, if we're going to think accurately, and we're going to think properly about the things of God. And so, it's important to understand that I'm not speaking this afternoon about the old covenant community of Israel. Though it was, in one sense, the assembly of God's people, It's not to be equated exactly with the new covenant community of God's people that is defined as, and we call it, the church. It is in that sense that I'm using this term. It's very true that there is an old covenant community of saints that God established through Moses that has its roots back in Abraham. But we need to be careful that we don't view that in exactly the same way as we view the church. There is a unity between it, but there is a difference between it. For a start, Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel was largely made up of ethnic Jews. The New Covenant Israel, the New Covenant church, is made up of sinners from every kindred and tongue and people and nation. We are an international community as opposed to one 
specific national community. That's only one example of the difference there is. But we need to understand that in the Old Testament Scriptures, we do discover that God had decreed, even as he called out Abraham, even as he established Israel, God had decreed that eventually these things, these communities, these assemblies would give way to an international community that would be drawn from all the tribes of humanity and be formed into one body under the headship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in his promise to Abraham, where he promises Abraham that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. The apostle Paul in Galatians then identifies for us the fact that the seed of Abraham is Christ. And that if we therefore are believing in Christ, we are children of Abraham. And we need to see this unfolding, progressive revelation in the scriptures that God has ordained from the beginning of time. He promised to Israel that there would be one greater than Moses who would come, who would be a prophet of God. One greater than the priesthood of Aaron that would come. One greater than, the, than King David who would come. And we know that these realities all find fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king of God. And so all of these Old Testament scriptures are pointing us forward to the messianic time, to the time when Jesus would come and he would walk on the earth and he would fulfill the promises of God and he would begin to establish, as we have in this text, his church because his father had ordained him to do this, had sent him in the wor- into the world in order to do this. And so it's very important when we think of the church, the centrality of the church, that first of all, we understand that the father ordained the existence of the church before the world began. And he decreed all things that came to pass, even to the very point of his son coming into the world to be born of a virgin, born under the law, born to fulfill the law of God and to accomplish redemption. So that's the first thing we need to see here. As we look at Matthew 16, we see that the Father ordained the existence of the church from before the the world began. But notice, secondly, we see here that the Son founded the church through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. You see, this passage, as you can read for yourself, is speaking to us of Christ, of his identity, of his ministry on the earth. And here the Lord Jesus himself is making it very clear that he is on a mission from God to establish this community and there is a way that he is going to establish this community. And how does he tell us he's going to establish it? Well, notice what he says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, upon what rock? Well, Roman Catholicism would indicate on the rock of Peter himself, who they claim is the first pope. That's a bad exegesis of the text. That's not what it's addressing. It is true, however, that Peter is involved. But in what way is Peter involved? Well, he's involved in this sense, that Jesus will build his church by way of Those who make an accurate confession of faith about who he is. Notice what it says. Simon, 
Who do men say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus recognizes that Peter is on the money about who Jesus is. And Jesus recognizes that the reason he knows who Jesus is is because the Father in heaven has revealed it to him by grace. And now Jesus says, on this accurate confession of faith, that comes from the mouth of all who truly understand who I am and believe in me. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. You see, that's why you're going to have a baptism class this week and some baptisms. Because what you're going to try to discover and discern as you interview candidates for baptism is, do they confess truly who Jesus is? Have they by grace seen and beheld the truth regarding Jesus in terms of his life, in terms of his death, in terms of his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And if therefore they don't, then they don't get baptized. They don't get added to the church. They don't contribute to the building of this body. And that's right and that's true because that's what Jesus is basically teaching here. You see, the new covenant community of God came into existence through the sending of God the Son into the world. And when Jesus Christ came into the world through the miracle of the incarnation, he did so in order to seek and to save that which was lost, perishing sinners. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that it is Jesus Christ who is the chief cornerstone of the church. That is, he is the one upon whom it all rests and it all depends. If he had not come and lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, there would be no church. His life of obedience to the Father fulfills the law of God on behalf of those who could never obey the law of God to the point that would satisfy God's justice. His sacrificial death on the cross pays the penalty of sin that God's justice demanded by way of his perfect law. And it secures pardon for all who believe in him for forgiveness. His resurrection from the dead reveals to the universe that the sacrifice that he has made has satisfied the Father's justice and accomplished redemption. And his ascension to the Father brings him into heaven to sit on that heavenly throne to reign and to rule over his universe and to continue to bring all his enemies under his feet until the Father gives him the word to come back and judge the nations and enjoy consummate relationship with all his people. You see, having come to the small remnant of believers who were awaiting the Messiah, and we have records of them there in the early parts of the Gospels, Our Lord stepped forward at his baptism to engage in his public ministry, declaring the coming of the rule of God into the world through him. That is what's happening at Jesus' baptism. He's coming and he's declaring now, the kingdom of God has come in me. And all who come to me submit themselves to the rule of God and shall be saved. His message of repentance from sin and faith in him draws followers from various walks of life. And that's what we we read of in the Gospels. And this passage that we're reading of here in Matthew 16 is very important because it informs us of the basis for establishing the true Christian church. The true Christian church is not established by rules and regulations. True Christian church is not established by men 
and choosing to do it their own way. No, the true Christian church is established by the grace of God in the hearts of sinners who have come to understand and believe and follow Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is a divinely produced, accurate confession of Jesus as Messiah, prophet, priest, and king that builds the church. And so where this confession of faith in Christ is genuine, Christ is building his church. As those people who have got this confession of faith find each other, gather together, begin to establish what? Their lives together based on the word of God. That brings us to the third thing I want you to see here in this passage. It is the Spirit that establishes the church according to the will of the Father and the Son. How do you think it was that Peter made this accurate confession? How is it that the Father worked in his life? Well, it's by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had to work in Peter's life. Take away the scales from his eyes. Take out the heart of flesh. Give him, take out the heart of stone. Give him a heart of flesh. Now it's true that he's at this season in, in redemptive history where there's transition from the old covenant and the workings of the Spirit in the old covenant to the new covenant and the coming of the Spirit in all its fullness, in all his fullness rather. But nevertheless, it is evident from all of Scripture that no man, no man can truly confess Christ unless He's born again. He must be born from above. The Spirit must come and take away the heart of stone and give the heart of flesh and take away the scales from the eyes and cause the heart and the mind to see the identity of Jesus. And it's interesting then that Peter, on having come to faith in Christ, would then experience uh, the fullness of the Spirit in in Acts chapter 2. And we've got to be careful much erroneous theology has arisen in the church as though we have to have a second work of grace and a second experience of the Spirit. But we've got to remember that these men lived at a unique time in redemptive history. To say that we have to have another Pentecost is like saying we have to have another crucifixion. We have to have another resurrection. We will not have any of those things because we don't need them. Because all of these things have done once and for all what God intended them to do. To accomplish redemption and to begin to apply redemption in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. And what we see in the book of Acts is the work of the Spirit beginning to move as Jesus promised the Spirit would move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is doing what Jesus said the Spirit would do, convicting of sin. Convicting of righteousness and convicting of judgment to come and producing repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And consequently bringing together out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation believers into the church. Organizing themselves in local manifestations of the church and ordering themselves according to the word of God. You see, in Acts, we see that at the beginning, the church universal and the church local were one and the same thing. That's the only time in redemptive history that actually happened. Now the church universal is certainly not to be equated with the church local because there are many, 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 many local churches. 
However, as the church delayed, as we see in the book of Acts, as the church delayed to move and do what God had commanded, what Christ had said should be done, did you notice in the book of Acts that God intervenes to get the church to move out of its comfort zone? He sends persecution to the church so that they might go to Judea and Samaria where they should have been going anyway with the gospel. And notice many local congregations then begin to be established through the preaching of the gospel, through the observing of baptism, through the observing of the Lord's Supper, through the teaching of the apostles' doctrine. And this is how you and I are here today. All these centuries later, that same gospel came over the ocean, all the way from Europe, You ever wonder why it was that when Paul tried to go north and east, God made him come west? God knew what he was doing. God knew that eventually there would be a group of Christians sitting in Roseville on a Sunday afternoon in 2012. Listen to a Scottish preacher. He did. He knew that a Scottish preacher would be preaching in the middle of Sacramento in 2012. The Scottish preacher never knew that 10 years ago. But God did. Because God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has ordained His church. And He's working out His purposes. And His church is at the very center of His purpose. You see, when you begin to look at how God has worked over the centuries, you see that through the ancient Near East, the gospel spread. Across the Roman Empire, the gospel spread. The church grew, it developed. Oh, it wasn't without spot. It wasn't without blemish. It's still not without spot. It's still not without blemish. It wasn't without error. It wasn't without division. It's still not without error, and it's still not without division. But nevertheless, it grew, and it grew, and it grew, until now here in Northern California. The church exists. Many local manifestations of the church, yourselves, ourselves, and others that we know, we are part of what God the Holy Spirit is doing in this generation. We have heard the gospel. We have believed it. We have been baptized. I trust. If not, get to the baptism class and get baptized. We have confessed Christ. We have, been, we have identified with His church as worshippers of the true and the living God and as followers of the same Lord and Savior. What a glorious reality it is to be members together of the household of God. To be part of the body of Christ. God's church is at the very center of his purpose. And this passage reveals that to us. That brings me then to the fourth and final thing I want to say to you this afternoon. The challenge of the church as that which is at the center of the purpose of God. You see, when you begin to think this through, you suddenly realize, don't you, that the center of our lives is perhaps not what should be at the center. You know, you hear people say, I want to get into the center of God's will. I want to be in God's will. I want to be part of what God's doing. Well, let me tell you this very clearly and very straightforwardly. What God is doing is he's building his church. And you need to get part of, become part of the church. Now, as I say to people who come to Emmanuel, you don't have to be part of the church as it manifests itself at Emmanuel. But you need to be part of the church somewhere. The Bible does not teach it's okay to be a lone ranger. No matter how much you like the lone ranger. Okay? The Bible does not teach that you are to try and live your Christian life 
independent of everybody else because you're the only one with spiritual insights. When I hear that kind of thing, my radar goes up. Boop, boop. Delusion. Boop, boop. Danger. I don't normally encourage people like that to become part of Emmanuel. I usually send them to Veritas. But uh, we normally have a bit of fun, Eric and I, about these things. But we, these are the realities, brothers and sisters. Listen. It's very important you understand this. We're living in a day of crass, crass egalitarianism and crass independency. And perhaps there's no culture in the world quite as independent as the one that we live in. And yet here we are and we're trying to build the church. It's not an easy task, is it? I read an excellent article just recently. Recommend it to you by Al Mohler. Where he was evaluating the megachurch. Now you say what you want about the article. But I thought one of the things that he mentioned that was quite interesting. Was the megachurch in America came into existence sometime around the same period as the mega mall. And he said it's very interesting because what's happened is in our culture, a lot of people treat the megachurch like the mall. Thousands go just to get what they want. But they never really stay and make much of a contribution. And there's a massive danger in that for our sanctification. There's a massive danger in that for our spiritual progress. You see, if you're a professing Christian, you need to understand the mind of Christ regarding your development as a disciple demands that you are part of the church. Not just the nebulous, invisible church that you can all say, well, I'm part of the church. You know, I'm I'm born of the Spirit and I'm kind of out here. No, no. The only manifestation of the church universal that you will be able to find visibly is the local church. And you need to recognize that Jesus, in calling you to himself, is calling you to find a group of other disciples to plug in with. The problem is that that's not easy. Because the minute you begin to get around other Christians, you'll find out they're just like you. That is, they're not perfect. They've still got spots and blemishes. Now, your problem with regards to this might simply be immaturity and ignorance. You really don't know what the Bible teaches about the church, and that's fair enough. Then you need to educate yourself in the Scriptures. Your problem may be that, as we find sometimes at IBC, people come, they've had a bad experience of a particular church. We understand that, and we will try to help them and work with them. But that is never to be an excuse for then wandering the earth for the rest of your days, never being part of the church. Your problem may simply be that you're just disobedient and in sin and you need to repent. I can be hard. Whatever category you fall into, however, understand this. There is something wrong with your Christian walk that needs to be rectified. If you are not openly, voluntarily, and formally identifying yourself with that which is at the center of the purpose of God in the world, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something wrong with your Christian walk. It may be your understanding. It may be immaturity and ignorance. It may be a bad experience that's left you bitter and fearful and all of that. It may simply be disobedience and sin. Whatever it may be, however, my dear brother, my dear sister, if you're a Christian here today, you need to sort it out. Because your growth is stunted spiritually while you wander the earth independent of the purpose of God. Don't tell me you want to be serious about 
obeying the Lord and walking according to his will when you will not get yourself plugged in to a church where the Bible is seriously preached and the pastors are seriously concerned for the welfare of the people. For some of you, it might be that you're thinking, great, I'm so glad I'm going to that baptism class this week. I don't feel so bad listening to Pastor Briggs this morning, this afternoon, because I'm kind of on that path. Praise God. That's good and that's right. That's what you should be doing. For some of you, it simply is that you're getting baptized and being added to the church. Praise the Lord. That's the start of your discipleship, however. That's not the end. That's the beginning. It may be that some of you today have become disillusioned with the church because it's not perfect. I had someone recently tell me that they're the only one really in America who understands what's really going on. I was astounded by that, that statement, I have to confess. Needless to say, they don't come to Emmanuel anymore, but the reality is there are people like that, you know, walking about. They're really convinced that they're walking with God when they're actually living in delusion. That is delusional, that you would be the only person on the face of North America who understands spiritually what's going on. How arrogant. How foolish. And it may be, you say, well, pastor, the church is just not, you know, doing what it should be doing, and it's not being what it should be. That's true. All of those things are true all the time about the church at some level. You have to come to terms with that. You've got to live with the tension of the fact that we have the now of the church and the not yet that is to come. And the truth, the truth is, it's true. We are still a church with spots and with blemishes. And we have pastors who are also got spots and got blemishes. And deacons who have got spots and got blemishes. And members who have got spots and got blemishes. But listen. The church is the center of the purpose of God. God has one plan. The church. There is no plan B. Don't try and invent one. Don't try and say, you know better than God. You know better than Christ. You know better than the Holy Spirit. You don't. And rather than be a critic of the church, why not be someone who contributes to the church? And is engaged in the church and is learning how to relate to people that are different from you. And learning how to deal with people who have spots and blemishes that may not be the same spots and blemishes you've got. But nevertheless, you've got them too. You see, that's the crucible God wants us to live in. So we learn what? How to love each other. How to be kind to each other. How to be able to deal with differences with each other. How to walk humbly with each other. How to be gracious to each other. How to be patient with each other. Do these things sound a little bit like the fruit of the Spirit? Because that's what it is. How to be self-controlled with one another. You go live up a mountain... On your own. You ain't going to learn how to deal with that. You need others in your life. Iron sharpening iron. You need the fact that you're going to offend and they're going to offend. And now we're going to actually apply the gospel here in our relationships. And as we do that, what do we find? We become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And for me as a pastor, you know, I see so much the glory of Christ in all of that. Oh, he's doing it slowly. And I'll be honest, for me at times, too slowly. But he's doing it. And he's going to continue to do it. And he may decide for another thousand years he's going to do it. You and I will be long in glory by that stage. And won't we feel really stupid and really daft that we thought that in our generation we were going to see it all come 
to glorious consummation. We think, wow, how out of tune were we with God's time? But you see, brothers and sisters, if our focus is on God, if our hearts are towards Christ, if we're in our Bibles and understanding them properly, and we're seeking to apply them appropriately, then we are going to see that the center of God's purpose in the world is His church, and that we need to be in the church, playing our part in the church, and just being grateful that we're even part of it at all. Because as I said to you, when it comes to the end of the day, or the end of the age, when Jesus comes in his glory to rescue his church, when Jesus comes in his glory to consummate his relationship with his church at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the only institution, the only entity that is going to actually exist is going to be the church. The church in every age will be gathered. The church from every culture will be gathered. The church from every ethnic background will be gathered. And it will be there celebrating and worshipping the Lamb and, and going into the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be nothing else. Nothing else. Our marriages will be a memory. Now I confess that's a little bit hard for me sometimes to handle. Because I like being married to my wife. Our families will not be in the same order as they are. That's not easy because I love my family. I even like being Scottish. <laughs> and I'm thinking about becoming an American. Though I'm not there yet. But I love these things. These things are part and parcel of who we are. But they'll all be gone. Heaven, heaven's throne is not draped in the stars and stripes. Or a Union Jack. It'll all be gone. We'll be this new international community of God's people. The church. And so if that's the end. And this is the beginning here in Matthew 16. And we want to be in the will of God. And we want to be obedient to God. And we want to enjoy the blessing of God. Then we need to love the church with all its spots, with all its blemishes. And we need to be contributing positively to the church with all its spots and all its blemishes. And we need to be patient with the church because the reality is it will not be perfect even in our day. And we need to be serving in the church because this is the will of Christ for our lives. Now what that does in terms of ministering to our community, each local church has got to work that out. On its knees, praying to the Lord. Some churches have very important people in their church. Some churches have no important people in their church, in terms of politically. Some people seem to have really wealthy people in their church, and some churches were just a bunch of average Joes, trying to make ends meet, and make the budget meet, and do what we can for the Lord. But nevertheless, we need to love Christ's church. We need to be committed to Christ's church. We need to be serving in Christ's church. We need to realize that the church is the central purpose of God in the world. And you see, once we began to understand that, we began to understand what it means to be a real Christian. Because Christ has not called us to live in independence of anybody else, but to live together in community. And so as we reflect on the centrality of the church from the Word of God, and isn't it interesting? To the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Thessalonica, 
the seven churches of the Revelation. Paul says that he had the burden of the churches on his heart, that he loved the church. Well, here's what he prayed for, and with this we'll close. Writing as he does in Ephesians 3.21, his prayer was that God would receive the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. My exhortation to you this afternoon is this. If you're part of this church, be faithful to Christ in it. If you're thinking about joining it, wear out with sincerity and get to know the pastors in the congregation, but become part of a church somewhere. And if at the end of the day you're having struggles with the church, then you need to go to Christ. You need to ask Him to help you to deal with it, because you know what? Christ loves the church, and He gave His life for the church. And it is the church He's coming back for. And you want to make sure that you are loving the church as Christ loved the church, and that when He comes back for the church you're going to be found to have been faithful in playing your part in the church. For that is God's will for all of us who are Christians. May the Lord help us to see the centrality of the church in the purpose of God and make the central thing of the church the central thing of our lives for His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, We confess to you that in this this day, with much confusion as to the nature of your church and the purpose of your church, and also, Father, in many ways because of the failings of your church, many are disillusioned. And yet, Father, when we turn to your word, it's impossible for us to read any length of time in the New Testament without being confronted again and again and again with the centrality of the church and your purpose on the earth. Father, it is our prayer that you would be glorified in the church. I pray you would be glorified in this church. I pray you would be glorified in every local church in this region that truly is preaching the gospel and believing the word of God. Pray, Father, that when your Son, the Lord Jesus, comes in his glory to deliver his church ultimately into the new heavens and the new earth, that he will find us serving faithfully, his church, with all its spots, with all its blemishes, seeking to love the church as Christ himself loved the church. Father, deliver us from that crass, independent individualism. Give us a heart for one another. Give us a heart for that which you say we should have a heart for, your church. And even now, Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper and remember Christ who shed his blood for his church, may we appreciate the blessedness of being members together in Christ. And may we be resolved to serve you and your church all the days of our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com. Bah.